Hey everyone, welcome to episode 91 of the So Does My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And don't worry, you didn't actually come to the wrong place. Because what you just heard was the first six seconds of Simi's very first episode with Chloe Pointing, a wildlife vet and conservationist. If you want to know which two animals you just heard, you have to stick to the end of this episode to find out. Now, this episode is a special one and it's something I've never done before. Because I realized that right now there are quite a few new Steamy subscribers. And I know how overwhelming it can be to find a new podcast and go, gosh, where do I even begin? So instead of heading to the next guest this week, I'm going to showcase some of my favorite moments from the past 90 Steamy episodes. Here's how this episode will go. I'll talk about how Steamy began, the kind of guests featured, the really shocking thing that happened to me and the podcast last summer, and four lessons learned. Now, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Now, you might wonder what is Genesis behind Steamy. The truth is, it began because I was lost. I've been a lawyer for over eight years. It's all I've ever known. And I found myself thinking one day, what do other people actually do? Not everyone's a lawyer. So how did I end up on their path? How are some of the multimillionaires in their early 20s or traveling around the world while the rest of us are stuck in an office? And for those with quote-unquote success, are they actually happy? What drives them and how can others do the same? That's reason one. Reason two, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn about fun things I didn't even know existed. Like what Chloe shared in episode one. A little fun trick I like with big cats is that Calvin Klein has a, a scent called Obsession for Men. And I don't think they've figured out exactly what it is or perhaps they have. But something in that scent is a huge attractor for big cats. And it's really handy because if you have a trap in the bush and you're waiting to catch a, a leopard or a cheetah, you just spray this scent all over the trap and they will come. So it's really fabulous. So I always think, I always wonder, like, what about all the men on safari that are wearing this scent? And I laugh every time I see it in the shop. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. I never knew to not head to a safari with a guy wearing obsession for men, even though the name should tell you something. But now I know, and so do you. So if you value life, don't ever go looking for lions if you have that perfume on. There are also plenty of lessons learned for the startup folks from one of the most successful founders in the world, Phil Libin, super entrepreneur and co-founder of Mhm and Evernote. Yes, that note-taking app. With Phil, he shared in episode 87 what he thought of startup success versus startup failure. Startup failure is brutal. It's super difficult. It destroys relationships and people, it's, it's all consuming. It feels terrible. It could be very damaging. Yeah, you can learn things from it, but you can also learn things from reading Wikipedia, which is less traumatic. So I definitely recommend looking something up on Wikipedia if you want to learn something versus starting and failing. Startup failure is it's very tough. It's very difficult. Uh, it's very hard. Startup success is much worse. Startup success is much harder. As Evernote, when you're failing, it's easy to know what to do. All you have to do is survive. But when you're succeeding, 
it's really about optimization. You still have the same, if not more emotional involvement. Now you have something that's worth protecting, but you're not sure what the exact best next thing is. When you're failing, you wake up every morning and you say, okay, my objective is to survive, keep the company alive. When you're succeeding, there's nothing you can do that's going to kill the company, you know, right away. <laughs> so it's not about survival, it's about optimization. Am I doing the right things for these thousands of people that are depending on me? Am I doing the right thing for the world? Is my product having the right kind of impact that I want it to have? All of these questions, these are all good problems to have. You know, people say, oh, that's a good problem to have. But the truth is good problems to have really hard. In many ways, good problems are harder than, than bad problems. Because again, the consequences are usually higher. It is harder to know what the right answer is. Or from Eric Toda, Global Head of Social Marketing at Meta and former CMO at Gap Inc. In episode 84, he shared how you can build a relationship with C-suite folks. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got, especially working in corporate America, and this is kind of where I got my original tip by asking, like, hey, you should always be helpful is you should never see an executive or C-suite person as like this other person. Like they're so much bigger than me. They're so great. And you know, whatever. This tip came from a C-suite person and they're like, they're just people, Eric. They're just people that had a lot more experience than you, have just somehow survived longer than you. And if you treat them like people, you'll realize you have a lot in common with them. You'll realize you can build a rapport with them. You'll realize even in the 30 second exchanges that you have coming in and out of meetings, oh, you, you know, look what you have for lunch or look what you're wearing or whatever. You build relationships over time and it compounds into an actual relationship to the point where if you want 15 minutes. Yeah, you can get 15 minutes. If you want 30 minutes, you can get 30 minutes. If you want two days, you can get two days. So you have to understand that's not about the levels or anything like that. You just treat people like people. Then there's also Nicole Quinn. General partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. She's known as the celebrity whisperer because she's both an investor and as a board member of companies founded by quite a few celebrities like Gwyneth Peltro, Jessica Alba, Sophia Amaruso, and Lady Gaga. As you can imagine, I had to ask Nicole what it was like working with Lady Gaga and how she decided that Lady Gaga, beyond her obvious celebrity reach, was actually a worthwhile investment to her as a VC. Lady Gaga is one of the most incredible people that I have ever met. She deeply believes that you can achieve anything in this world that you set your mind to. And you know, she's definitely a great example of having shown that. You know, she's an Oscar-winning actress because she set her mind to that. You know, we all know her for her incredible music because she set her mind to that. And now we're going to have House in many, many stores you're going to see across the country. And so House Labs came to your point because Lady Gaga had a very strong view. Her view was like, listen, I've been obsessed with makeups from a very, very young age. I used to play with my mothers. And whenever I'm in the dressing room before going on stage, I'm always like mixing up concoctions with different makeup. And she had this view of like what she wanted her makeup to look like. And then what she wanted a beauty company to look like, which will, you know, then go into hair and skincare. She really like to the point of like the ingredients that she wanted in there and these to be clean, beautiful products and the names and the models that they were used and the exact shade of coloring. Like she had strong opinions on everything. And so this is not a company that she is endorsed. This is very much her company. And so we love that. We felt like, gosh, she has deep insights, you know, to the earlier point. It is really what we look for. And I just felt like she was so authentic. So yeah, she's an amazing chat woman of house. And she used to say that I have my fingerprints all over. It's like a crime scene. 
And then before you jumped into this investment with her, you also poured over Lady Gaga's Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, just to see whether she had this engaged followership. I wonder, how do you measure engagement? If it's a social app, then we very closely measure engagement by looking at daily active users over the weekly or monthly active users. But for something like this, you're right. It is much harder to measure engagement. And so we were trying to measure whether Lady Gaga's fans were engaged. And yes, we can see that through her social followings. But are they engaged around beauty? Are they engaged around color cosmetics? I went away on vacation for a week. And on this week, I basically did read through every single comment that I could possibly find about Gaga online. And so it basically took every hour for about a week. And I was reading through and I wanted to see like, what were people commenting on? Like, were people commenting about her makeup? Were people commenting about her look? Because if that is what people associate with her, then she is going to have much more authenticity in selling that product. And it's true. Like, that is what a lot of people comment on her look and comment on, like, my gosh, you know, one day she'll look like this and then she'll put on this incredible face of makeup and look just the total opposite. And so she was able to like command attention and had a real right to win in that space. But here's the most shocking thing of all that happened to me last summer. What happened was that Steamy got featured not once, not twice, but four times on the Late Late Show with James Corden. Because I had recorded an interview with James Corden's boss, Nick Bernstein, who is the senior VP of Late Night Program on West Coast. Bernstein, how was your weekend? I, I was asked to be a guest on a podcast because I said that I would say yes to anything. So a woman uh, in Malaysia who does a podcast <laughs> asked me if I would be on her podcast, and I said, sure. And then I realized I have an irrational amount of confidence now because of this show. <laughs> Hang on, what's the podcast about? It's called So This Is My Why. It's about... Find how, your why. The why. Find your why. I, uh, I ended up spending like three hours talking about myself to this lady in Malaysia. Hang on, you've already taped it. Yeah, we taped it. When's it out? I, I don't know yet. I oh, and next this week. is going to be gold, guys. You better hope, you better hope that podcast doesn't come out like before we break up for summer because we'll get two shows off the back of that. We'll get two shows off the back of that. She, she found him through this show, which means she's probably watching right now. Drop the Nick Bernstein episode yeah. right now. <laughs> Wherever you are, yeah. drop the episode. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited for that. I'm excited. And as a result, James and his crew decided to dissect both parts of the episode when it was released. The analysis of part one, well, listen for yourself. The podcast that I was uh, a guest on was, uh, was released, which yeah. was really fun for, for me and like three other people. <laughs> it, just so you know, it wasn't. <laughs> Nick's job as Senior Vice President of Late Night at CBS. He did a two-hour podcast about Late Night without mentioning James Corden or CBS. <laughs> it's amazing. That, that's an absolute choice, isn't it, Nick? I was just... Not even all, some chat at the start. There wasn't well, just even... Like even the establishment of the idea of why this Malaysian person reached out to do a podcast because she saw her, him on this show didn't come up. <laughs> and we none of us got a mention. Who got a mention? It was Fallon. Conan a lot. Co it was all Conan. Leno got Leno, in there. 
SNL. Letterman, SNL. Carson. Car- Johnny Carson got in there. In Living Color. In Living in Color. In Living Color. <laughs> wow. Twice. I, I am literally sweating wow. through this entire outfit that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> Oh, dear. So when's part two out, Nick? It's out on... Said no one. (laughs) Now, I'm excited to listen to it. (laughs) Uh, Everyone's been very nice about it to me until right now. Just so you know, everyone has not been very nice about it. Everyone's been very nice about it to you. Everyone's been very nice about the Emoji movie to me. If I went on, if I went on only comments that people told me about the Emoji Movie, it's bigger than Toy Story. <laughs> Look inward. <laughs> I'm excited for part two. Poor Nick. But I have to say part two went slightly better. You know what I asked for my Father's Day? Uh, Jules, my wife, said, well, is there anything you want, anything you need? I said, all I need is a few hours on Sunday, just to catch up on part two of Nick's podcast interview. <laughs> That's all I want. Just two hours alone. Just listen, just to, to really drink in the whole thing in. But this, it's out now, right, Nick? It is out now. It's you out, know and you, you do, uh, Kate, big surprise, you do mention the show, and you're very, very lovely about all of us. Thanks. So, Why is that a surprise? You. Sorry? Why it shouldn't be a surprise that I say lovely things about you. I love this show and I used to, I like you. <laughs> I used to, I used to think we were very close and then I've been ripped to shreds oh. over and over again on this show. Don't and now do I wonder. this. Don't start trying to make yourself out to be some kind of victim down here. <laughs> There is no other workplace where the more you're roasted, the more you're loved. I, I think that's true, and I really do appreciate it. Most <laughs> um, have you had a good reaction from, the, from part two? <laughs> well, I don't know what I'm supposed to say, because yes, I have, and then uh, not, not from people here. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting. Um, but yes, the uh, people seem to be really interested in uh, how this show came about and uh, I'm but one way they can find that out. Yeah. Well, I think it's lovely. And I love you. I do. <laughs> I, I also, I really, I, I really do love you all. I do. I'll often send you, whenever you've been on camera, I'll always send an email afterwards being like, that was so funny. I love you so much. Yeah, you did that once. <laughs> How many do you want? (laughs) But ultimately, I can tell you there was someone who wasn't impressed with all of this. Nick Bernstein's wife. What does your wife say, Nick, when you tell her that you're doing a podcast at the weekend? (laughs) She got very mad at me that um, I did the podcast uh, through dinner. (laughs) For hour three. That's showbiz, man. That's it. That's it. You're the other side of the line. You're in the, you're in the bright lights, I, the, I, the adoration. Yeah, I, I, uh, I have felt myself way too much at this point. <laughs> well, we don't need to get into the... 
Don't need to get in the inter- right. literal ins and outs you know, of I'd... your relationship, Nick. I don't think any of us care how much you're feeling yourself. You know, the, the great thing about Ed Sheeran was how nice he was to all of us. That was really fun. <laughs> what? <laughs> wasn't the question I asked you. I think we were... I think at that point we were talking about you wanking, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's... So there you have it. A fun, well, summer story that happened to me and the podcast. Now let's hit a lot closer to home and talk about Dr. Finn Tan, a deep tech VC from Singapore and current chairman of Vickers Venture Partners. As with all steaming interviews, we began with his childhood and talked about how his dad's company went bankrupt when he was young and the effect that he had on him. So they seized our house, they took all our cars. So in the end, my parents moved to an HDB flat. And that was the first time that they had lived in an HDB. But I was already overseas. And I had a scholarship for my fourth year because I did very well for my third year. And so when I came back on holiday, you know, I saw the HDB flat and lived there for a while. And then I went back and I got a scholarship to go to Cambridge. I did my master's, my PhD. I taught for a while. And then I came back after that. But by then, I had a job until I bought an apartment and then later a house. Do you feel that that moment changed you? Because I read that you were determined to win all of the awards in your third and fourth year and you planned it like a war. You've done a lot of research. It didn't have anything to do with my dad's situation. In my third year, when I first went to Glasgow, I didn't have anything to do Well, I didn't know anyone. So I got to know a few Singaporeans. And uh, on the first day of school, I came back, put my bags aside like I always do, and went around knocking at doors to see who's going to play with me. But everybody was doing some work. So I had nothing to do. So I decided to just maybe go through my stuff and prepare for tomorrow. And I started doing that daily. And when the exams came, I, I really did well. You know, I excelled. There were, I think, two or three prizes on offer. And after the final exams, I won all three. I didn't aim to win all three, but I happened to have won all three. And so I said, wow, this is interesting. So then I looked at the fourth year and they were like, seven prizes or something like that for many, many subjects. So I said, how cool would it be if I won all, right? Because I already have a perfect score. So I said, "Mm, maybe I should try for that. So I planned for it. And yeah, you know, I took it like a war. Because if you want to win all the prizes, you can leave nothing to chance, right? So I needed to make sure I was at least 10 marks ahead of number two. But that's very, very tough. You must be super good. So I planned how I was going to do it. And this may be interesting to you. I realized that when you are at an exam, your mind is not the sharpest. And sometimes you have some memory lapses. I couldn't afford that. So I said to myself, how can I remember all the essay answers perfectly, leaving nothing out? Because I have to be perfect, right? So I said, well, actually, I remember a lot of songs by heart. And I never forget them, even in an exam, right? So I said, how can I remember it like a song? How can I remember a particular answer like a song? The only way is to practice and to do it daily or often. So I wrote all the perfect answers in point form because you can fill in the English language. You just need the points to make sure that you don't miss anything. So every morning after I prepared all, I would memorize them. And then every day I would write the answers every day for many, many months. So by the time the exam came, I knew this point is like the back of my hand, like a song. So I would then spare a lot of time to do the analytical parts. So now I'm sometimes callous and sometimes you make a mistake and you don't know you made a mistake and you get an answer and you feel good about it. How do you know the answer is right? So I knew I had a lot of time to spare. So why do I finish in half the time and then go home? I have to use the time well. So I decided to find ways to check my answers. 
by either back calculating from the answer to the question. Sometimes you can do that and sometimes you can't. And if you can't, I figured out ways to arrive at the answer through another mean. So completely different way. And if I arrive at the same answer, then I know I'm correct. So I can check my numerical answers too. So that's what I did. And I was so nervous because I was so prepared. And on the first day of the first exam, I looked at the paper and I knew everything by heart. I could finish it in like one third the time. I got so excited and I started to shiver and I couldn't keep my hand straight. I couldn't write. So I said, oh, calm down, calm down. I held my hand and then they were okay. I started and I finished it in like one and a half hours. And in two hours, I checked all my answers and I knew I would be like 100 or 98 or something close. And then I had nothing to do because I was so quick. I still stayed till the end. I just checked and checked and checked and <laughs> I never left because I didn't want to waste any spare time. So I felt very good after the exams. And then I came home because I had to finish my national service. So I came home and when the results came out, uh, a friend of mine wrote to me and said, we went to check the board. There's only one name. So I did it. I was very, very happy because I worked for like a year for that. And so on the back of that, I think you got scholarship offers from Oxford, Cambridge and MIT. Yeah. I mean, I had perfect scores, right? So I could go anywhere. Cambridge was really special because both Oxford and Cambridge, when you go there, it's like going back in time. It's like Harry Potter, right? Everybody wears a gown. Everybody's on bicycles. We eat in the hall and then there's a high table. There's somebody who speaks in Latin and you toast to the master and the queen and it was really nice so when i went there for my interview i fell in love with the place more than when i went to oxford because cambridge is um, a little more liberal and i'm a liberal oxford is a little more conservative and cambridge is also a little more scientific and uh, oxford a bit more liberal arts like history and ppe etc so i think uh, cambridge suited me better now with that kind of discipline Finian obviously got into Cambridge, got his PhD, but did his path end there? Nope, because Goldman Sachs ended up poaching him. And how did you end up in Goldman Sachs? I think you were poached, were you? Yes, I was a very active and gutsy trader. Well, maybe gutsy is not the right word. I was a planner and I would plan big plays, kind of cornering the market. And I put on a few plays and on one of them, the counterparty that lost the most was actually Goldman. So in the end, they decided to hire me. So they offered me a very good position. So I joined them in Singapore. Then I was posted to London and traveled to New York a lot. And then I came back to head the office of J. Aaron. J. Aaron runs trading for Goldman. It's now just called Goldman, but at the time it was still called J. Aaron. Goldman acquired them in 1982 and kept the name until the 2000 something. Goldman was a big, big change because Goldman is an American firm. And it was the first time I was exposed to Americans because I went to Cambridge, I went to Glasgow, I worked for Royal Dutch Shell, and then suddenly I joined an American firm. And it's very, very different. The hierarchy is very flat and it's all a question of how good you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been there. And you need to be gutsy to speak up and just speak your mind and may the best man win. So very different. Culture was totally different. And People were very relaxed. Dressing was relaxed. You can put your feet on the table when you're talking to somebody else. Whereas in Shell, that, that never happens. Very prim and proper. I adapted and quickly became the head of the office in Singapore. And then somebody asked me to join the government. And, and that really was a big crossroad in my life. Surprise, surprise. Vinian didn't end up staying at Goldman Sachs. He left 
to become a government servant because of the four L's. Have you heard of the four L's? To live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. So my interpretation of that is to live a matters of the material senses, so material things, and then to learn involves the brain or the mind. To love matters of the heart and to leave a legacy matters of the soul or I guess what you leave behind, right? So the job in Goldman didn't fulfill all four L's. I was materially very, very satisfied, but I wasn't learning as much. I was contributing a lot because I was good at what I did. Did I love my job? When I'm up, I, I loved it. When I was down, I didn't like it. So it was kind of a roller coaster ride. And was I leaving anything behind? Not quite. As a trader, you're an intermediary, right? You don't really create anything. So it wasn't complete from a 4L perspective. The government was more. You leave a legacy. What you do has an impact on everyone. If you do it well, you can make people's life much better. So leaving a legacy is good. And you're learning every day and you are moving from ministry to ministry because at the end it's an open ministry. So you're learning a lot and you're enjoying what you do because you're contributing. Materially, it was okay because Singapore pays pretty well, but I had to give up quite a bit there. But there's just so much you can get in each L. So let's say you earn... 3 million, you fulfill materially. If you earn 10 million, it doesn't change it very much. You know, that L is already fulfilled. So it's more the other things that you should look at. So I felt that this would be more fulfilling. And if I didn't like it, I can always go back. So I didn't really have very much to lose, just time. So I, I took the plunge. It changed my life mainly because I was asked to help make Singapore into a Silicon Valley for Asia. And that got me into venture capital, into startups. And finally, I could use one part of my brain that I didn't use, which is my PhD in engineering. Because as a trader, I was just using my numerate skills. But now I could use my financial skills plus my tech skills. So that was very helpful because of venture capital is really a mix of finance and tech. So it was perfect for me. And I saw my calling. So after one term, I joined the Draper Fisher Jefferson Deep Planet Ventures. And they were well-known today. Draper is well-known today for Tesla, SpaceX, and SolarCity, and all of Elon Musk's company. But at that time, they were known for Hotmail. And so I joined them as the founding partner for Asia. And lucky enough, my first investment was a small company at the time called Baidu. So we took a very big stake in the company. We began with 25% and gradually inched that up to 28% at the IPO. And I think it still holds the record for the best performing IPO in Nasdaq's history. Did you catch that last thing he said? Because he heard right. For Finian's very first investment, he took a huge, audacious bet and went all in on a little startup called Baidu. And that VC journey began because Finian felt itchy. He wanted to play. I was there for three and a half years. And you can do so much as somebody in government. You're not a player. You're a referee, a trainer, an umpire, but... You're not a player. And with the internet booming like that, I was itchy. I wanted to play. That's the only way I could do it, to actually go in by myself. Because the internet revolution at that time was the biggest revolution that I had ever seen in my life. The biggest change. Everything else was incremental, but the internet would change everything. So I decided to go in headfirst. And rightly so, because it has impacted the world in such a big way. And the other thing that was changing the world was China. So I got so excited about China. And so that's why I became the founding partner for Asia. And the first offices I opened in Beijing initially, and then later Shanghai as well. And I understand at the time you had this interesting way of deciding how to invest. You drew a line in the book. How did that whole thing come about? 
The year 2000 was a very funny period, 1999, 2000. Anything that had .com was going crazy for no good reasons, just measured on eyeballs. Even though there was no path to profitability, nobody cared. Valuations were sky high. Everything was in the billions. So I was no longer a young kid at that time. So I couldn't just blindly invest in something that had no path to profitability. So I said, okay, why don't I draw a line in my book and on the left, write what I know for sure. And on the right, I would put what I was still unsure about. So all the business models I was unsure about of the companies like Inktomi, InfoSeek, AskGeef, InfoSpace, all these companies, right? eBay, Amazon. And then, okay, it started to fill up the whole page. So I said, okay, what do I know on the left? For sure. The internet will grow, number one. China will grow, number two. And that's it. So I asked myself, since I know these two will happen, what could I invest in that will surely make money if these two things happen? And after thinking about it for a long time, I realized that it was the operating system of the internet in China. But what was the operating system of the internet? What is the operating system of the internet? That was difficult. Was it Microsoft? No. Was it Cisco since they supplied all the devices? No. Was it the Explorer equivalent at the time, Netscape? And I didn't think so. So in the end, I concluded that it was search because that's what we still do today as soon as we go in. So that got me very, very interested in search. So we talked to all the companies that have come into the DFJ family, all the search companies, those that came to our friends, we talked to the incumbents, we talked to the customers, and we realized that Baidu stood out perfectly. Because th the way you measure a search company is relatively easy because it's objective, it's speed and relevance. And Baidu was the fastest and the most relevant because they had a completely new architecture. So the choice of Baidu was easier than deciding what to invest in using the line in the book. That was the more difficult part. So they were better so, than like right. OpenFine because that was the technology incumbent then, right? And Baidu was Correct. the upstart. By far, by far. Uh, we measured it, it was better. And we spoke to the customers. They were moving as well. They were thinking of switching to Baidu, but not yet. They hadn't switched yet. Mm -hmm. So we took a risk, but that's the nature of venture capital. Right? You have to take those risks. At the time when you jumped into Baidu, they were a small startup, no revenue. They were in the market for nine months. No one else was jumping into it. And you decided to make that big play of 7.5 million. So was it the entrepreneurs like Robin and Eric who convinced you that it was worth that big giant bet this one year, your first time? Yeah, I think um, obviously the team was amazing. Robin and Eric were amazing. They really knew what they were talking about. Robin had spent his life doing search, at least the last few years of his life. And Eric was a boy Friday, he could do everything. And he had a lot of charisma too, because he interviewed a lot of people in Silicon Valley, etc. He was kind of a semi-journalist for a while. So the team made a lot of difference. But after deciding to invest in the operating system of the internet in China, deciding that that was search, finding the best company in that space, there was nothing else I wanted. So in the year 2000, when most people invested in anything that walked, that had www.com, I only wanted one. So we only invested in one company in the year 2000, which was Baidu. So since it's the only company I wanted, I decided to take as big an investment as I could make. And after I filled my requirements on that, I could think about other things. So that's why we could take it all. There were other people wanting to put a million here, a million there, and together they could form a consortium. I came, I liked it very much. I took it all. And in the end, we allowed IDG to invest a million with us, and that's it. And the rest were re-ups from existing investors. As you can probably guess, Finn's journey was only just starting. I can't reveal all of his secrets here, 
because honestly, that interview also took three hours. But if you want to hear Finian's full story and what he's doing now, you just have to listen to his full interview at episode 30. So by now, you've heard snippets from six out of 90 past Simi guests, each of them unique in their own way. I'm going to let four more guests share four lessons I also learned from running Simi. Firstly, let's be honest, we can all be Finian tons. In episode 55 with Carl Mark, founder of Hatmail, which owns platforms like SGAC, MGAC, PGAC. And if you're an Asian and you don't know these platforms, please Google them. Well, Carl knew that he wasn't great at studying, but he didn't let that stop him. I realized that like, I was not very good at studying. I was just very mediocre uh, at best. But then I realized like I had the ability to sell. People trusted me. I realized that it also helps that I look a bit older. So... I was literally 21 years old when I sold my first apartment for my client. And I remember the guy who was buying it was an older gentleman. And then when he looked at my IC, he was like, dude, you're 21. And I'm like, yeah, I'm 21 years old. And he was like, are you kidding me? Like, I just bought a house from a 21-year-old. Do you scam me or fool me into this? I was like, no, this is what it is. You saw the house. It it is everything. And he just looked at me in amazement. He was like, young man, you're going to go very far in this industry. And and he was like the managing director of a big MNC, right? And I, I appreciated those compliments. And I started to think, right? Like what are skills or talent that I had that could really uh, allow me to pursue my career in a certain field? And I knew sales was it, right? I I knew I was good at talking and convincing people to do things. And so I guess, yeah, gift of the gap, selling physical properties was the first real sort of work that I did that allowed me to discover or uncover a little bit of what I might call a bit of talent that I had because I couldn't find anything else. I was not like super smart. I was not like super intellectual or I couldn't do a lot of things and and this was like the first thing I realized I was better than most other people my age so yeah that was a bit of a discovery for me second lesson life is hard don't always focus on the end live in the present enjoy the journey for Dr. Julian Tan in episode 3 he was the head of digital initiatives and esports at Formula 1 and fun fact if you're an F1 fan you remember that F1 couldn't run their real-life races during the pandemic. Instead, they had eSport races, pitting real-life F1 drivers against celebrity golfers, footballers, and more. That entire eSports component, Julian was behind it. And this is his approach to life. I've always lived my life in the present, I suppose, kind of riding the waves. I didn't think I would have gotten into Oxford to do engineering. I didn't think I would be doing a PhD after. Certainly didn't think I'd be working in management consulting and never in a million years would I thought I'd be working Formula One in esports. So I've always been the kind of person who takes things as they go. And then if there isn't a great opportunity, don't shut myself out to the opportunity, go and experience it. And if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And it's okay. Either way, my whole life has always been like that. I don't think too far, too many steps ahead. Of course, I try and prepare in the immediate future, but I don't. And in some ways, actually, this is one of the things I think about sometimes, like, should I not have a North Star? And for me personally, I've never really had that. I think the closest I've ever had was when I was a kid and I said I wanted to get into a good university. That was kind of my North Star. But beyond that, it's always been, you know, what opportunities come up and making the most of it. I only do things I enjoy. And if I don't like it, I don't spend too much time doing it unless there is a part of me that feels that that is an important part of my being. It's that journey. And once you have achieved something, that's great. You get a high, but that's not life. Life is the journey, not the destination, if that makes sense. 
Thirdly, we have David Grief from episode 60. Now, David was a senior English clerk. What that means is that he was the person who nurtured and grew the careers of many renowned barristers and judges, including the former Chief Justice of England and Wales. For him, he shared a motto in his episode of how he lives life and what Asian culture actually doesn't do well at all. My motto here, and I use an awful lot here, is if you don't ask, you don't get. And it's a cultural thing in maybe the same place. The people junior are afraid to ask seniors whether they can do something. They think it's impossible. And if I talk to seniors from the other end of the scale, they would say, of course, why not? If you talk to the juniors, they don't ask. So in my motto is don't ask, don't get. What's the worst going to Someone can say no. And finally, we have one of my dearest friends in episode two, Red Hongi, a well-known architect turned artist who pivoted into a current career because of personal art project she uploaded on YouTube, where she used a basketball covered in red paint and dribbled on a large piece of paper to create the portrait of Chinese basketballer Yao Ming went viral. With red came the fourth lesson. The world is big. We aren't always confined to what we study, and it's actually okay to be a little crazy. In this snippet, Red shares what it was like going viral and how she managed to convince her parents to let her give art a go. So were you getting more and more viewers coming on board and seeing your work? Was there growing interest and more media coming towards you? Yeah, yeah. I had like a small following at the start, like during the Yelming thing. I, I, I set up a Facebook page after that. And then it built up from there. And it's been really fun connecting with people all over the world. And it led you to the EG conference, which happened in the same year in April. That was so quick. So the, the person who reached out to me, his name is Michael Hawley. He's like a dear friend and a mentor almost to me. He's the guy behind EG. And when he emailed me, I thought, no way, is this a scam? Is this a hoax? And I like Googled him. I was like, no kidding. Professor MIT has done a bunch of things. He's brilliant. He's worked with um, Steve Jobs on Next and all that kind of thing. And I thought, no, this is not real. And we jumped on a call. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is real. He took a leap of faith and invited me to go over to the States to speak about my art in May. And at the time, I just started out. So I thought, okay, I have to do another portrait of like an American or something like that. <laughs> so it's more relevant to the crowd there. And I chose Mark Zuckerberg. And yeah, I think that was when my parents realized that, oh my gosh, this fun side project is actually happening. It's real. And I think it freaked them out. So it flew over right before the conference and um, they're like, are you sure what's going to happen and all that kind of thing. And then in the end, we decided that mom and dad should go over for the conference too. So they came with me and that was when they realized that, oh, my daughter is not that crazy after all. There's a room filled with crazies here. <laughs> Who are also successful. They're doing all sorts of different things. So I, what I love about Mike is he puts equal importance and respect in the sciences and the arts. So he had amazing scientists discovering like incredible things to, to musicians, to artists, to astronauts, to, to chefs, to everything. And that really just opened up our eyes and made us go, wow, you know, the world is that much bigger. It's not just confined to whatever you study. 
Because the AG conference is actually quite a big deal. It was something of a turning point for you, wasn't it? It was. It really was. It, meeting all sorts of people and having all that conversation with them there expanded my mind a lot. And after that, my parents were like, okay, I think you know what you're doing. I, and we trust you. We have to, we have to trust this. Because they met all these people who trusted what I was doing. So that was really something that changed my life quite a bit. And I have to thank people like Mike who actually believed in what I was doing. And there you have it. A very small sample size of some of my favorite moments in Sini. And I hope it gives you a good idea of what you can expect as you're going through the archives. The links to all of the episodes and guests mentioned within this episode will be placed in the show notes, which you can find at sothismywai.com forward slash 91. Now, remember in the first six seconds of this episode, we heard some animal noises? Let's hear the first one again. That was a koala. Now here's the second. And that was a lion. Did you get both right? If you did, if you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. Take a screenshot, tag me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or even better, Twitter. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and the kind of stories and people you'd like to see featured in future episodes or just to share your thoughts in general. And do stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting a retired four-star general who was actually the former chief of army and chief of defense forces in Malaysia. Some of the things that he got up to? Well, firstly, he fought in the Congos and also in the Vietnam War where he witnessed the fall of Saigon. He was a part of a team of 33 commandos who fought against 330 enemies and had to scale a leech-infested mountain that was 2,000 meters high and had to use a collaborate lock canoe to cross crocodile-infested rivers. He was also once threatened by his superior that he would be court-martialed. And when asked, he said, I'm still waiting. And once, he swam from Singapore to Johor in full uniform because the British soldiers told them Malaysians can never become commandos. Well, this former general showed them what Malaysians were really made of. And guess what? Not a single British soldier dared to even try to make that swim. Now, I don't want to spoil his entire story because it is truly insane and remarkable. And I can't help but think that he has more lives than half a dozen cats. So do subscribe, check out the past steamy episodes, and see you next Sunday.